So Matt, I don't know that I've told you this yet. Um, okay. But this is this is kind of a, a story in Adam's history that I thought you'd find funny. Um, years ago, uh, I had a roommate, and we lived in this two story townhome. And she had one of these old school dress forms from the seventies that her mother gave her. Okay. And it was like you know the torso without a head, no arms, whatever, mm-hmm. and you just. Mm-hmm. Knit the dress like a wire, on wire looking thing. Or, well, oh it, no, no, this like a solid. Yeah, the solid. solid like, oh yeah, cloth okay, thing. yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought it would be funny to stick that skull that's to your right there uh-huh. on top of it. It's uh-huh. a little foam uh-huh. skull yeah. with fangs and horns on it, right? So I thought that'd be funny. It was hilarious until one morning. I'm getting up to go to work, and it's four thirty in the freaking morning, and I'm walking down the stairs, and she had moved it to the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> So it's pitch black in the house, right? And I take a few steps down the stairs and I look up and there's this thing. And I went, oh my God, and almost pooped myself and fell down the stairs. So it's a it's a good thing that I didn't have my gun because there would have been holes in the wall from where I shot it. And, you know, I'd have Yosemite sand it and everything. It would have been horrible. But. This that's like my house, yeah. man. It's constant, and yeah. it's always it's me. Everybody's <laughs> wanting to scare me because yeah. I react that way. Yeah, see, and then I don't normally. I'm usually pretty even keel, but that got me. Yeah. That really did. I scream like a baby. <laughs> that's so, great, man. All, all right. right, you ready? Yeah, let's, let's do it. Do it. <laughs> Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable, because this is Graveyard Tales. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, Graveyard Tales Entertainment proudly presents to you my fellow paranormal generalist, Matt, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. Good. (laughs) I had to, I'm sorry. Like I said, I don't ever know. (laughs) I could not help myself. Hey, but you know, somebody posted in the group about uh, going back and listening to one of the first episodes and the energy with the uh, intro and everything. And so we did it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Adam's like, man, that's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. I was, you know, and it it's almost is one of those things where if we didn't put so much hard work into that first episode, I'd just like make it private. <laughs> you know, it's like don't even listen. Just take to it that. off. Start episode two. Yeah, just, I don't. I don't know that two's any better. Three. Three is where you want to start. Three. Oh yeah, start so, at three. Well, just skip the intro. We want you to listen to the first two. Just skip the intro. Yeah, exactly. And then, then pick up on three. Just, um, imagine <laughs> the intro now and ignore the first couple intros that we do. Uh, it, yeah. is, it is funny how it's evolved. You know, I, I think it does have to do with the fact that I drink a lot more of that Death Wish coffee now. Um, <laughs> not a sponsor. I wish they were a sponsor, but not a sponsor. I know. Uh, maybe one day um, if they want to fuel my nervous shaking over here, that yeah. would be good. Um Shakes like a dog passing a peach yeah. <laughs> We're doing good that I don't have a stroke while on mic, you know. 
but I think it's more coffee, and then it's just funny to see the evolution of it. I know, you know, it, I know. But it's embarrassing, embarrassing to go back and listen to me go, good evening, everybody. <laughs> Imagine what we'll be like next year. Oh, Lord. <laughs> there, I might pass out on camera from the intro after that. Um, but we want to let you guys know that it is getting close to the live event. It is so close, and you're almost out of time to get tickets to the live event. So if you have not, graveyardpodcast.com to go buy your ticket. So if you're planning on coming, make your plans. As we've said before, Nashville is a cool place to come anyway. It's really cool in October. There's a lot going on. You'll have a great time, and you get to hang out with us. Yeah, it'll be great. I mean, what what more could you ask? We're going to give away some stuff to you guys. We're going to have... You know, and some good guests to talk to, and Hillbilly Horror Stories is going to do a little thing. We're going to do a little thing. You're not going to want to miss it. Um, you know, we may let you sign Matt's head. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what will happen that night? Draw hair on Matt's head. <laughs> yeah. You may have to uh, actually wear a wig so people don't do I, that. I know. Or, or a hat I'm going to get a. I'm going to get a skull cap. There you go. Or a hard hat. <laughs> there you go. Um, we also wanted to thank you guys for all your support, your reviews, the Patreon support, and for just being awesome. We love you guys. It's amazing every day when we have interactions with you guys, how awesome all of y'all are and how supportive you all yeah. are. It's, yeah. it's just amazing. Yeah, we're blown away. Thank you. Thank yes. you so much. So now that we've gushed and gushed, um, why don't we take a quick break and then we'll get into the episode. So, Matt, what would it be like if we all listened more? And it's not really like you listen to me anyway, but never <laughs> listening to audiobooks is what motivates us, inspires us, and even brings us closer together. You know, Adam, that's absolutely right. And there's no better place to listen than Audible, because now Audible members get even more exclusive audio fitness programs, audiobooks, Audible originals, and more. And... Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet. And now, with Audible Originals, the selection has gotten even more custom with content made for members. This month, the X-Files book with David Duchovny and Julian Anderson is available to members, and I just downloaded it myself. And right now, I'm also listening to Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind by Nick Redfern. And if you go on our website and check out all of our book recommendations... All of those books are on Audible as well. Nice. Every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audio book they choose, plus two Audible originals from a changing selection that they can't get anywhere else. They also have access to audio fitness and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. Plus, your books are yours to keep. With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime. Even if you cancel your membership, didn't like your audiobook, exchange it. No questions asked. That's awesome. And now start a 30 day trial and your first audiobook is free. All you got to do is go to audible.com slash grave. That's G R A V E or text grave to 500 500. Again, that's audible.com slash grave, G R A V E. Or text GRAVE, again, G-R-A-V-E, 
to 500-500 to get started listening today. All right, we're back at it. Matt, what are we talking about tonight? Okay, tonight we're going to look into uh, remote viewing. And some of you may be wondering, what what is remote viewing? You may have heard of it before. You may kind of associate it with psychic ability. Is that where you lose your TV remote and you ESP where it is and you find it? No. Oh. (laughs) Good try. (laughs) Good try. Because look, I have to remote view the remote in my house all the time. Yeah. Because if there's anything I say more than, (laughs) where's the remote? Yeah. Good grief. Give me the remote. It's like I can't walk over there and turn the television on. I'll spend 15 minutes looking for the remote. I could have already turned the TV on. Exactly. Just pushing a button. But, <laughs> yeah. It's a principle of the thing. Exactly. So we're going we're gonna to d- tell you what, what remote viewing is. We're going to talk about the different types. We're going to talk about the U.S. government's use of mm. remote viewing. And we're going to tell you how you can train yourself how to do this. So um, it's interesting and and Adam, I, I think you you know this, and and I learned this, that people that are skilled at remote viewing, the way they talk about it, this is not an innate ability. This mm-hmm. is not, you know, something that you're just you either have it or you don't. Right. This is a skill. This is something that everyone is able to do. Mm-hmm. You just have to learn how to do it and practice and train yourself to get better at it. So for example, you know, there there are there are four-year-old children that can pick up a violin and play a violin. And I hate those people. Yeah. But then there are people that can practice and practice and learn and train and become virtuosos. So it, it doesn't matter if you have if you're born with the skill, you can learn the skill. So that's what people are saying about remote viewing. Right. So I know you're wondering now, if you if you don't already know, what the heck is this? Okay, so so let's talk about it. So um I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an example and then I'm gonna tell you what remote viewing is. So this this is this is some sort you got you gotta you gotta think right here, okay? So consider this. There's a piece of paper. Now that paper has a certain size, shape, weight, texture, etc. The paper vibrates at a certain frequency. Now, if I take a pen and I begin to write on the paper, the ink on the paper vibrates at its own specific frequency. Now, the thoughts that I'm projecting onto the paper through the ink also vibrate their own unique frequency. So now the entire piece of paper, ink, and the thoughts all vibrate at a new specific frequency. And that frequency can be tuned into with our minds, regardless of where it is in time or space. So to use your music example, it's like building a symphony that you can hear. You you know, the vibrations of the paper, the the writing and your thoughts that you're projecting all create this one symphony that someone can tune into like on a radio and pick up and some you know, you can either hear the whole thing or 
different instruments. Exactly. Everything on this planet or in the universe is its own radio station Mm -hmm. and they're broadcasting their own frequency and slight changes or additions or subtractions to those things change the frequency. Right. Enough that your mind can turn it into an image that you can describe. So something that is across the street, across the world, or across the universe, if you know how to do this, you can tune in and visualize specific details about it mm-hmm. in your own head. And that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. So what exactly is remote viewing? Well, to understand what remote viewing is, you, you sort of have to understand what it's not. So remote viewing is not a psychic ability. So remote viewers are not psychics. Now, psychics can be remote viewers, but they do it a little bit differently. So what we're going to talk about tonight is the ability for you to train yourself um, and become a remote viewer and some of the people that have done just that. So a remote viewer doesn't see images or videos in their head, but instead they get flashes of information that consist of things like smells, colors, textures, temperatures, and whatnot. The more flashes that come, the more specific the remote viewer can be. So it's not astral projection. You're not going there and looking at it and describing it. Mm -hmm. You're gathering information that's already out there in the universe. You're just bringing it to yourself. Even if it's a place you've never seen, never been to, never heard of. And in fact, having not ever been there helps. Right. Because your own preconceived notions can interfere mm-hmm. with the the information that you're receiving. So start with a blank yeah. slate. You do not leave your body and you're not asleep. You're right. not unconscious. This is a complete, you know, it's a, it's a waking event. Right. So remote viewing is the ability to receive this data and give information about an object, event, or person that is hidden from physical view or separated by distance. So how does it work? A remote viewer is given information about a specific place, event, or person that's known as the target. Now, since the viewer must not allow any of their own knowledge of the target to interfere with the data they receive, the information they are given is usually coded. For example, If a viewer was asked to give information about the Eiffel Tower, they would be given its geographical coordinates or even just a string of numbers representing the coordinates. The viewer then writes down impressions of the information that comes to them based on what they're given. These impressions may be recorded in the form of ideograms, which are just usually a series of shapes or Squiggly lines that represent certain aspects of the data they're receiving. So, you know, for for hot, they may, you know, just instead of writing the word hot, they may draw a little of a little squiggly line that represents fire to them. Mm -hmm. 
You know, if it's if it's cold, they may draw something else, a snowflake, you know, something to keep you from having to write out these descriptions because you're you're getting more and more information. You have to move quickly. Right. Okay. So this allows the viewer to, like I said, record these impressions quickly and stay more focused. The impressions are compiled by the viewer to provide more detailed information on what they believe the target to be. The more data and impressions, the more detailed the response. So that's that's remote viewing in a nutshell. And I'm I'm going to I'm going to talk about the different types of remote viewing. So this will begin to make, you know, a good bit more sense. So the first type and the most common type of remote viewing is called Controlled remote viewing or CRV. And and most of what we talk about um, in, in some of the, the stories, uh, it's CRV. I'm it, never going to look at that Honda the same way. <laughs> <laughs> look, I got in a Honda and I knew what was going on in Egypt. Right. <laughs> I love Hondas. So CRV is the type of remote viewing that's used most by the U.S. government. In CRV, once the viewer is provided the initial information about the target, he forms what's called a gestalt, which is makes up the majority of the target. It's, it's the information, um, for example, if the target is a river, the viewer may get the color of water or the feel or movement or water or a, a sensation of coolness. The viewer will then begin to record the dimensional information like size, weight, shape, and then more qualitative data is collected like if the target is hard or soft, if it's good or bad, light or dark. The more data that is collected, the more detailed it becomes, but the viewer must not yet try to deduct what the target is. As more data comes, the viewer will begin to translate why certain information is collected, such as the meaning of a word that is written or a particular color or shape, all the while ensuring that their own precepts don't cloud their judgment. At this point, the viewer will begin to sort out details of the target, such as dimensions, location, people or animals at the location, etc. And sometimes during CRV, clay models are used when there's enough data for the viewer to actually begin to mold and shape, you know, a, a three-dimensional image of what they're gathering. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's controlled remote viewing. Now, the, the next form is called associative remote viewing or ARV. I don't know of a car for that one. (laughs) Yeah, me either. I don't don't have an ARV. (laughs) So once a remote viewer has developed enough skill in CRV, they can advance to ARV. Now in ARV, again, associative remote viewing, additional information about a specific outcome for the target is provided by the viewer. So, Here's an example. If I ask Adam if a certain toy that I invented is going to sell well this Christmas, he may have the toy in front of him that, you know, that's the target. He's already got it. And as he concentrates on the target, he'll receive flashes of images that he can then make inferences about the target. So, 
if he sees flashes of an arrow pointing up or pointing down, he may translate that into, you know, good or bad sales for the upcoming year. Okay. Makes sense. That's the, that's, that's the big difference. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we're going to give you the target and you're going to tell us something about it that you don't know. And that possibly even we don't know. Right. Sort of like trying to predict the future, Mm -hmm. you know, there's an example of using it for the stock market. You know, if I concentrate on a stock as a remote viewer, I may be able to see, does this stock do well or is it, you know, does it tank here, you know, in a few months? Right. You know, so. I need to get a hold of a remote viewer. Valuable information. Yes, sir. (laughs) The next type of remote viewing is called beacon or outbounder remote viewing. Now, knowing what remote viewing is and, and, and what we've told you, this one changes a little bit. Now, in, in beacon remote viewing, you're actually putting a person physically at the target. And that person then works as a transmitter or a beacon for the information that they are seeing, hearing, feeling, you know, their experience, they're sending out. And the remote viewer is trying to capture that information without knowing where the beacon is. Right. Okay. So um, the beacon is typically a person that's unknown to the viewer as to eliminate the potential of information being passed such as the beacon accidentally making a statement about getting on a plane or a boat to travel to the target. Now, this information you would think would be helpful, but it's not. In fact, that information would only serve to cloud the viewer's mind, preventing them from being able to sort out the true data coming from the beacon and their own preconceived notions about what the target may be. So this is not a guessing game. Right. You know, Adam's not going to, Say, okay, I'm leaving, and here in about an hour, you're going to try to figure out where I am mm-hmm. and, and what I'm looking at. And you're going to have descriptors. Then I'm going to come back, and we're going to look and see if you're right. Right. So that, that, that would be a very simplified version of, of beacon remote viewing. Right. And in some cases, as we look at how the U.S. government used this, the, they wanted to be able to tap into a beacon that didn't know they were a beacon. Exactly. So, it was a way to do it and not get caught. Right. So we know that this guy is there. Mm-hmm. We want to know what he's doing, what he's seeing, what's going on at this location. So we want to concentrate on this guy. Right. And you would have a remote viewer do that and try to pick up on all the 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 senses that this guy was experiencing, what he saw, what he heard, who else was there, what was going on. Right. And and that was a way that the US government thought they could they could spy on the enemy, mm-hmm. essentially. It would it was during a time when they were looking at different ways of uh warfare. Yeah. And it like you said, it it's one that, you know, they were experimenting with to try and spy on, you know, the Russians and all that so that they would not, you know, get captured or, right. or something like that. Right. So, you know, now, nowadays, you know, having somebody, you know, if I, if I, if I did the example with Adam, 
I mean, truthfully, other than it being a neat trick, you know, Adam could pick up his cell phone and go, hey, I'm here and uh, I'm looking at this. Oh, here, let me send you a picture of it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's not as beneficial for those kind of things now. I mean, we've got technology that, you know, works much, much better. Mm -hmm. Um, But back in the 70s, this this was a big deal, especially if if I wanted to know what someone was seeing and not have them know that I was seeing what exactly. they were seeing. Exactly. Exactly. You know that I know that I know what you know. Exactly. I think. But we don't know. Right. <laughs> or do we? I don't know. <laughs> so so the last or the, the the fourth version, you know, there there are others, but they're they're all just essentially variations on these four main types. But the last one it is the most rare and it's called extended remote viewing. Now, in this form, um, it involves these long extended sessions where the viewer is in a hypnotic or meditative state. Now, remember, one major part of remote viewing is being able to write down what's coming through. If you're in this hypnotic or meditative state, you may or may not be able to do that. So, you have to have a guide so or or a monitor is what what they're called so this type of this type of remote viewing requires a viewer and a monitor which is a person to help guide the viewer along during the viewing and what they'll do is they'll they'll ask questions they'll do things to help facilitate the process like saying things like where are you what do you see you know what do you hear and 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 those are open-ended questions, not leading, you know, not interfering with the data or not causing the viewer to have, you know, his own memories um, bring up something that would give you false information. Right. Now, the reason this is so rare and the reason it's not really used now is because there are not really anyone, there's not really anyone left in the world that's a trained monitor to be able to do this. So. In this type, you had to have a highly trained viewer and a highly trained monitor. Mm-hmm. So you you have to train two people to be able to do this, and there's just not enough of the monitors left. So right. no one's putting the time into it. That's right. And so the biggest thing that remote viewers have to deal with is distractions. You know, and the number one problem is their own mental noise. Now, when a when memory and imagination begin to encroach upon the data that's coming in. That's called mental noise. An example of this is if the viewer is receiving data on a target that's surrounded by water with a firm surface like the ground and animals or people, one may suspect the target is an island. But in reality, they don't know what the actual target is yet. But they're beginning to make inferences which could lead them in the wrong direction. And some v- viewers will go through what's called a cool down, where the viewer will put themselves in a meditative state to reduce this interference. But since this is time consuming and really determined to be unnecessary, it's not always favorable to, to work this way. Now, some viewers will try and close their eyes to block out visual distractions. But since viewers really need to be able to write this stuff down, 
they're often instructed to keep their eyes open. Now, in some cases, other remote viewers trying to view the same target can cause an overlay of information, which can also cloud the viewer's judgment. So that's that's remote viewing. Mm-hmm. OK, and, and as we've mentioned several times to this point, um, the U.S. government utilized this in, in their attempts to spy on the enemy. Yep. Now, you got to remember when this was going on and, and Adam's going to going to delve into this. We're talking about the, you know, the 70s, mm-hmm. you know, the Cold War. So keep that in your mind when you're thinking about when the government did this. And the reason we, this was a top secret project. Yep. The reason we know about this is because it was all declassified when the project shut down. Yep. In 2000, a Freedom of Information Act was, I guess, uh, they requested um, these be released. So they released them in 2000. And now we have all these FOIA documents that Adam can spend weeks reading. Yeah, but- so, but when did this all stop, really? It stopped in they, quote, closed down um, the Project Stargate that we'll get into in 1996. 96. 1996. Yep. I mean, yeah, I, w- I was an adult <laughs> in 1996. Yep. I mean, this is not that far away. No, it's really I not. Mean, for for. You know, for folks that are going, oh, man, this was just some crazy hoodoo stuff. It was pretty close. I mean, it's been it's been fairly recent that this was and and a lot of the people that did this are still alive. Oh, yeah. And and write books and and do interviews about the things that they did and the things that they currently do. Right. I mean, they just they just didn't pack it up and go, eh, we ain't doing this no more. No. A lot of these folks still do this. And Matt and I will recommend you guys go out and find those books from these people that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's it, amazing. It's, it, it is incredible. It is incredible what they were able to do. Yep. On that note, why don't we get into talking about Project Stargate that we mentioned? Now, it went by a lot of other names during the 70s, but it kind of all got narrowed down into one project that they called Project Stargate. And Project Stargate was developed by a man named Russell Targ. And he did an interview with Vice that I'm going to kind of read from here so that we kind of understand what Project Stargate was. Now, Russell Targ is the man who developed this government-funded psychic espionage program in the 70s. And it used the remote viewing process that Matt explained just a minute ago to do this and russell targ taught hundreds of esp inclined individuals to transcend time and space using their mind now targ says quote in 72 a man named hal Putoff and i met at stanford and if you research any of this stuff you will recognize the name hal Putoff. Uh, don't have time to get into all of his stuff, but we'll say he and Russell Targ met at Stanford. This was right after my decision to leave the field of laser research after 15 years. I was interested in teaching people how to expand their awareness and become a psychic. I even built an ESP teaching machine shortly after Hal and I created a program for the Stanford Research Institute. I had a meeting with Werner von Braun, Arthur C. Clarke, and the director of NASA, Jim Fletcher. 
they helped facilitate the funding for what would turn into a 25-year research program on parapsychology and remote viewing. Now, he says, we had more scientific acceptance at that time because we had more money. The CIA spent $25 million on us. We had a lot of respectability, but by and large, the public didn't know what was going on. The great psychic Ingo Swan, who we'll get into here in a little bit, and it is pretty amazing. Um, he taught a woman named Hella Hammond and, and I how to do remote viewing. Hella and I taught six people from Army Intelligence how to do it, and from there it spread. In a way, the Army is responsible for teaching the world. You can see where, you know, that's kind of the the start of all of this because, you know, he met with Hal Putoff and all these other high-ranking officials and convinced them to put in a massive amount of money into yeah. this project. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, the, the government throws a lot of money towards a lot of things that you go, yeah, why in the heck did they do that? I right. mean, they're just wasting money. But as a rule... The government doesn't typically just dump funds into something that they don't believe is going to work. Right. And they don't keep doing it for 25 years. That's right. So not only did they buy in in the 70s that this could be done, they were seeing evidence that it worked. Exactly. Okay. So, I mean, you think about it. I mean, I, just just put yourself, I mean, make yourself the U.S. government. You're you're going to start spending your hard-earned money, or our hard-earned money, on a project that somebody tells you, hey, this guy or these guys, they can do this thing where they can see what's going on on the other side of the world, mm-hmm. sitting in this room, and they can give us information that we don't know and we can't get, but we need it, you know? We need to know what our enemies are doing. And the government says, yeah, okay. I, I, I don't know. Here's a few bucks. Mm-hmm. You know, show me what you got. And it goes from there. Yeah, and if nothing they, they, came they, out of it, they wouldn't have kept doing that's it. That's right. They would have shut it down real quick. That's exactly right. But the, the fact that they kept it going for 25 years, that just lets you know right there that they found some stuff. Yeah. And they were intrigued by their findings. That's right. So during that interview with Targ, they asked, what are some of the secrets that you helped uncover? And this is just a quick snippet. We'll get into some more of the detailed things here in a minute. But Targ says an ex-cop named Pat Price was one of our most gifted viewers. He helped uncover a Russian weapons factory where they were manufacturing a particle beam weapon to shoot down satellites. Another time we looked in on a failed Chinese atomic bomb test. Ingo Swan was able to predict that the test would fail three days in advance, and that's exactly what happened. Also, we monitored the health of the American hostages in Iran, and we were able to accurately predict that one of the very sick people would be released immediately. A few days later, Vice Counsel Richard Queen was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and set free. Another discovery was a downed Russian airplane in Africa, that had Soviet codes and perhaps an atomic bomb on it. And we found we found it in Africa before the Russians reclaimed it. Jimmy Carter commended us for it. 
one of the psychics we trained, Joe McMonagle, which we'll get into more here in a minute, described a Soviet submarine under construction that was 500 feet long. The intelligence community thought it was crazy because it was three times bigger than any known submarine. He drew detailed pictures of what it looked like and how it would be launched. It was a Typhoon-class submarine, and we were the first ones to discover it half a year before it became operational. You know what else was a Typhoon-class? Hmm. Red October. <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was. Man, that's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I love submarine movies. The, the first one, I assume, not the... Wasn't there a remake of Red October? I, if there is, I hadn't seen it. Okay. But I mean, I'm, you, I could be wrong. How, I could be wrong. How can you not like Sean Connery with a Scottish Sean accent Connery. playing a Russian submarine captain? <laughs> right. I mean, what what's not to like? There's about something that? awesome about that. That's just <laughs> inherent. Um, All right, tangent tangent off. <laughs> so uh, the interviewer also asked Targ. Have your remote travels ever led you to a really weird place or unearthly places? And Targ said, I once visited a UFO, which was somewhat frightening. I saw an array of bodies lined up under violet light and things that looked like hair dryers. Nobody was around, but it seemed very menacing. I described this to Pat Price, who told me I was in a body storage area, and I was lucky that I didn't get grabbed. So, that's another thing that we're about to get into is some of the weird things that they have remote viewed and that they've gotten into. Right. And if you if you listen to the interviews with some of these guys or other people that are skilled remote viewers, they will tell you the same thing. Remote viewing is not limited by time and space. So the distance or even the time right. doesn't matter. Right. You can you can remote view something that happened a hundred years ago or a hundred years in the future. And it doesn't matter if it's on Earth or out in outer space, the, the distance is irrelevant. Right. So one of these guys, uh Stephen uh, A. Schwartz, right around this time, the the late seventies, he decided to conduct an experiment. Now, his experiment began in 1978, and it ended in 1996. Now, over those years, he worked with 40,000 participants, all in these extended guided remote viewing sessions. They were instructed to remote view into the year 2050. Okay, All, all of them. And this is this is some of the things that came out of those sessions. So the viewers were asked if there was nuclear war. Now, remember, we're talking about 2050. OK. And they said no. And so this was at the time of the Cold War. You know, this was at the time when movies like Red Dawn mm-hmm. were and, and the day after. Right. You know, it was scaring the life out of people because the idea that somebody was going to push the button and drop the bomb was, was very, very real. Oh yeah. And when they asked, okay, well, what, what about the Soviet union? And they said, well, the Soviet union disappeared. Of course, in 1991, the Soviet union fell. Mm -hmm. 
Now, when they asked about dangers in the world, you know, how they said, you know, what about the human existence? Are, are there are there dangers in the world? And they they mentioned these epidemics. And so when they were asked for more details about epidemics, remember, late 70s, early 80s for, for a lot of these answers, um, the viewers described a blood disease that originated in Africa that crossed over from primates to humans. Now, of course, now we know that would be HIV. Mm-hmm. Okay. The viewers were asked to describe health care. They said antibiotics no longer work in the year 2050. They said uh, infections had to be treated with, with newer methods. Now, superbugs are a very real thing now. Yes, they are. Okay. Antibiotic-resistant organisms are very real. Yes. But in the late 70s and 80s, nobody even considered anything. No, that was unheard of. That's right. everything we had then, you could treat. Exactly. Now, the viewers also made statements regarding travel performed by getting into a device and or putting a device on your face. And you could experience being in another location without actually traveling there. Anybody ever tried a virtual reality tour? No. That's exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> I mean, you can do it with Google Maps, for crying yeah. out loud. You, you can walk. You can walk into museums. They, they've, yep. they've photographed and integrated these things. I mean, you, you don't even have to have a, a virtual reality headset. You can do it on your phone. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they mentioned that people don't travel as often because uh, airplanes don't don't fly as much because it was determined that, you know, the emissions from jet fuel were dangerous for the environment. You know, they they mentioned that there was no war, but the the world was much more dangerous then than it is now because of what they described as religious terrorism. Right. You know, which, you know, that's probably one of the the. The the hot the biggest hottest scariest thing going on right now right is is, is you know a terrorist something attack. we see all the time in the news that's right know? that's right so um you know a, a lot of these remote viewers feel like that they can make some type of prediction about the future mm-hmm. okay. and that is scary when you look at what they were predicting and we haven't made it there yet obviously uh, this is not 2050 unless it is 2050 when you're listening to this right and if it is <laughs> then get in touch with matt then and go I. back to episode one and start there and listen to how weird the intro is right, exactly because <laughs> by this time our intros are probably done by a robot or something i don't know yeah we're we're on episode 5,972. Yeah, if we're still doing i don't know <laughs> Uh, we we should get a remote viewer and ask them if we're still doing this in 2050. Hey, that's right. That's what we need to do. Remote view this podcast. Right. So there was, we talked about this remote viewer that was named Ingo Swan. And he had like some of the bigger projects. He and uh, McMonagall had some of the bigger projects and were some of the best remote viewers of the time. So this was mid-70s when this happened, and Ingo was contacted by his government contact and said, you will have a meeting 
with a guy named Axelrod. He will be calling you soon, so be prepared for it. So Swan was really worried about it for a while. Well, it ended up taking four weeks. And in four weeks, Ingo got a call and he was told to, you know, meet this contact at the Natural History Museum. So he met at the Natural History Museum and it was kind of this thing that you see in the movies where they kind of meet up very discreetly. (laughs) Yeah. Come with me. Exactly. (laughs) So Swan gets in the car with him and they start to drive off and the contact blindfolds him. He says, you've got to be blindfolded for this. So he blindfolds Swan and they drive to what ends up being a helipad. Swan gets in this helicopter and flies off. Very trusting individual. Well, yeah, I mean, you kind of got Of course, he was be. a psychic, too, so he probably knew. Yeah. Oh, this is okay. He said it'd be fine. So <laughs> um, he was, he got in this helicopter, and he was helicoptered to a location, then led, still blindfolded, down an elevator shaft, and he said it went on forever. Now, when the blindfold was removed, he was face-to-face with a man who introduced himself as Axelrod. Now, Axelrod made it clear that he wished to make use of Swan's skills on what was clearly a secret operation for a significant sum of money. And it was really one of those offers you can't refute. <laughs> That's right. You know? Well, you done blindfolded me, put me on a helicopter, sent me down this long mm-hmm. elevator. I don't know where I'm at. Why, why would I refuse yeah. you now? Yeah. I've done all this. <laughs> I make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> so Axelrod asked Swan, what he knew about our moon. Now, the purpose is finally kind of coming to light as to what this strange meeting uh, was going to be about. Someone within officialdom was secretly looking to have the, the moon remote viewed, which is exactly what Swan did. Now, by Swan's own admission, he was utterly floored by what he found. During an initial targeting... His mind focused in on sensational imagery of what looked to be a huge tower, similar to the size of the Secretariat building at the United Nations, but one that soared upwards from the moon's surface. This was no human-made structure, Swan was told. It was the work of nothing less than mysterious extraterrestrials. In follow-up remote viewing sessions, Swan was able to perceive on the surface of the moon a wealth of domed structures, advanced machinery, additional tall towers, large cross-like structures, curious tubular constructions across the landscape, and even evidence of what looked like extensive mining operations. Someone or something had secretly constructed nothing less than a moon base. Now, Intriguingly, Swan was also able to focus his mind on what appeared to be a group of people that appeared very human. They were housed in some sort of enclosure on the moon, and they were busily burrowing into the side of a cliff. The only oddity is that they were all completely naked. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, why not? Yeah. You know, we're on the moon. No need for clothes, man. (laughs) You know, we're on the moon. You know, I'm going to bend over. Here's the moon. Yeah. I'll show you the moon rock. Um, so, sorry. So, ominously and very quickly, at that point, Axelrod terminated the experiment. Now, it, it said that... I would have, too. Yeah. It said that amid 
uh, dark and disturbing allusions to the possibility that the moon-based entities were possibly acutely aware they were being spied on via the means of astral travel, it was even implied that Swan's very actions might now place him in grave danger if these beings decided to turn the tables and pay him a visit of the deadly kind. But fortunately, this did not happen to Swan. Close encounters of the dead kind. Right, exactly. You know, that was probably one of the bigger, weirder things that Swan did. Yeah. Um, I've got a few more things, little snippets of stuff that Swan did, and then we'll kind of get into some other remote viewers and what they saw. Now, in 75, Ingo Swan, remote viewed from the original CIA program that we were talking about, he was asked to remote view the coordinates of a Russian submarine. And we kind of talked about this before. Um, he deduced it was some sort of test since the Pentagon already knew what happened to the submarine. Well, while remote viewing, he was quoted as saying, Oh my God, I think that this submarine has shot down a UFO or the UFO fired upon her. What should I do? And that's where we don't get any more information. So a really weird thing. You know, there was apparently a uh, a submarine and a UFO in a battle, and he saw it. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool movie, maybe. Yeah, that's the reboot to Hunt for Red October that I was oh, thinking yeah, about. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. That's what that is. <laughs> uh, so Ingo Swan also remote viewed the perimeter of Jupiter and predicted that there was a faint ring around the planet something that our telescopes were unable to detect at the time. Now, when Pioneer 10 did a flyby of Jupiter in November of 1973, it confirmed there was, in fact, a ring around the planet. So he did these readings early early 72, late 71 is when he read that. So it wasn't for another couple years that, you know. We were we, actually able to. Yeah, we actually to figured see it evidence out. that it. He was right. Right. So, you know, for a while, people were thinking he was a crazy person. Or didn't care. Right. I mean, you know, that 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 kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I could tell you anything about a planet, you know, and I'm like, really, does anybody honestly care unless they're into that? Yeah. But what you should care about is the fact that he was right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, there was... Why even guess at something like that? Why even just throw it out there and just like, meh, maybe I'm right. Yeah, especially if there's the possibility that it could be proven wrong. Right. You know, if you're just pulling a wild guess out of your butthole, there's no reason to do that. If you know that we're going to be investigating soon, then yeah. any other claim you've made would be a, labeled a sham if you didn't get that right. Yeah. And and one thing you, you've got to remember uh, when we talked about the different different types and how this is done. You know, these guys are not looking at, looking at a picture in their head and going, Hey, that's Jupiter. Oh, look at there. There's a ring. It, it doesn't work that way. Right. They're getting all this information and, and they're, they're just collecting it and then they're taking it and they're looking at it and going, okay, what does this mean? You know, okay, this I'm, I'm seeing this and I'm seeing that. And, if I put it all together, this I'm I'm thinking Jupiter, mm-hmm. you know, and then 
but there's rings. You know, why am I why am I drawing these rings? You know, what 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 is there's a there's a ring around Jupiter. Right. You know, that we can't we can't see. Right. And he may have thought he was going crazy, too, at that point. That's right. I mean, you know, the one of the most important things for remote viewers is that they get feedback on how accurate they are. That helps them mm-hmm. hone their skill because all of the other information that's flooding their senses interferes with that, as we talked about earlier in the show. So they have to be able to tune all that out. So if when 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 they learned that he was correct and years later find out, yep, sure enough, he was right. There's a ring around Jupiter. We can see it with this new telescope we've mm-hmm. developed. It, it gave him the ability to go back and and look at his gestalt and and shape it and say, okay, this was the information that I got and this much of it was only important. So right. the rest of this was noise and and I didn't need it. So if this kind of stuff happens again, I can I can take it out. You know, I I can ignore this. And so every time that they get that feedback of how accurate they were, they get a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, Im- imagine if you're a singer and you can't hear yourself sing. Right. It's really difficult. Sure. You know, when you're when you're training your voice and you're learning music, if you can't hear, you hear what the note's supposed to be. If you can't hear what you're doing, then it's very, very difficult to match it. Right. Exactly. You know, so it's the same principle. I've, I've got to know, was I right? Mm-hmm. You know, or am I just full of it? Am I just drawing a bunch of squiggly lines on a piece of paper? Yeah, right. You know. So let's move a little bit ahead and let's go to 1974. Now, wealthy heiress Patricia Hurst was violently kidnapped from her home in 74 by a cult known as the Symbionese Liberation Army, which went on to brainwash her and enlist her in their crimes. In the days immediately after her kidnapping, Berkeley police were still in the dark and frantically looking for leads. Along with his team, Russell Targ used remote viewing and were the first to correctly identify the kidnapping car and one of the kidnappers, which led to finding her. Right. So we can see they're kind of using this now in, you know, more, not official, but more like active means with the police force and safety and stuff. Right. And in touching on this, as far as the Patty Hearst kidnapping, um, Joe McMonagall still does this kind of work today. Yeah. And helping authorities with kidnapping cases is something that he has done. Um, but even he will, will admit that when there's a, when there's a case, especially like a kidnapping, you know, police are working on a time frame. I mean, they, they know that they're on the clock to find out where this person is, who has her, where they would be mm-hmm. and how they could get to them to rescue them. And McMonagall says they get flooded with psychics. Oh, sure. Telling them, you know, this is where she is. This is where she is. And, and they, they follow up. And if it's wrong, 
the next dozen psychics that give them other information, it's just pitched in the trash. Right, because you're wasting time. And so here comes, you know, somebody like McMonagall, a remote viewer that says, this is what we think is going on, and this is where you should concentrate your search. And he's not giving, he's not going, hey, she's on, you know, she's at 231 North Elm Street. Right. You know, he's telling them things like, this person is in a building and this building is in is on the outside of a city and it's it's not a it's not a very well traveled area but there's roads and and there's another building that's very close to it that looks like this mm-hmm. that's really tall and it has these certain shapes and attributes and and she's in a room um and the 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 room is on the third floor right and and there's a sign and the sign kind of looks like this, but it's this color and it may say this or it may not. And when they take all that information, they start pinpointing. Is there anywhere where that matches these descriptions mm-hmm. and then go there right. and look. But, you know, he comes along and says, do this. And they just look at him like, you're just another psychic, dude. We can't waste any more time. On these wild goose chases. We've already looked at a dozen places that these other psychics have said to go, and we were wrong. Right. So why should we believe you? So in an interview I watched with McMonagall, he says, you know, as a remote viewer, you have to learn how to sell your product. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be able to tell somebody, this is why I'm right, and these thousand other people are wrong. Right. Because you do. Like you said, you get inundated with all these quacks that just want attention they want their name in the headlines as to finding this girl you know and that's happened for centuries when there's a crime you know somebody comes out of the woodwork saying they know they can sense it and all that so you you know you do have to sell it i guess to Mm -hmm. to have any attention paid to you at all so if you're if you're if you're keeping score at home so the way this works is, you know, if we're talking about a kidnapping case, the remote viewer is using that person that's kidnapped as the target. Right. And and they're collecting data about the target. And in this particular case, the target is also a beacon. Right. The target is putting out information about what they hear, what they see, what they feel, what they smell. Mm-hmm. You know, are they on a hard surface? Are they inside something very small? Are they in something somewhere very big? And that's the information that's going out. And that's what these remote viewers are trying to tap into. Right. So there's another kind of weird claim that was made by Major Ed Dames. And he was one of the original students that was involved in Project Stargate. And he said that not only do extraterrestrials exist, but they are actually collaborating with humans to stop nuclear war. Now, he was on the Coast to Coast radio show. And if you don't listen to Coast to Coast, do it. You're missing out. Uh, But Ed Dames describes UFOs that were reported actively shutting down U.S. Trident nuclear missile tests. When the Pentagon asked him if he could get any intelligence from remote viewing, He said his remote viewers claimed that these were not craft, 
but plasma balls being controlled by both extraterrestrials and human beings that were not born on this planet. So they are humans, but they are, they're basically extraterrestrials themselves. Um, and we talked about Joe McMonagall in, you know, a lot so far. Um, but one of the things that he is said to have accurately predicted was where the United States research satellite Skylab would fall. 11 months before it crashed to Earth, McMonagall told his superiors that the spacecraft would crash in Padua, Italy. And I'm sure I said that wrong, but I apologize. That's exactly where it ended up. So he determined that almost a year prior. Yeah, a year. I mean, not like three or four days before. Right. A year. There was no way in the world that he should have been able to predict that. Right. Exactly. Now, in this case, this was one that I was reading through one of those FOIA documents, and they didn't release this remote viewer's name, but... In November of 86, uh, a remote viewing subject who was sent to Saturn's moon Titan reported seeing a base on Titan's surface. Entering the base, the remote viewer found to her astonishment that all the operators were identical to human beings. She observed two young, healthy human males working at a control panel that were supervised by an attractive female. Now, in this same document, the subject describes two other sessions. This time, though, it was on Earth. She was sent to Mount Hayes in Alaska. Now, she reported seeing two entities, in quotes, working outside a structure. Inside the structure, she came across a human-looking technician working at a strange machine. The technician could see her and invited her to take a look at the apparatus. An even stranger scene met her when taking a look at a site somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere. An inhuman, robot-like creature and a hairless, pale, humanoid entity were also aware of her presence. Now, we're seeing that you can be noticed by certain entities, you know, by remote viewing. And... I'm going to real quick do one more remote viewing case by Joe McMonagall. And then Matt's got some interesting stuff on being seen right. by entities. So we'll go through this McMonagall case and then we'll get into that. So by 1984, Army remote viewer Joe McGonagall had progressed up in the ranks of the CIA remote viewing hierarchy. Um, And, you know, there were dozens, if not hundreds of missions geared toward fighting communism and terrorism and investigating foreign regime change and all this. McMonagall was sent on one mission that was way outside this purview. Now, he was apparently staying with a longtime CIA friend who was also a remote viewer named Robert Monroe, and he was staying in Virginia. Um, Monroe received instructions from the CIA for a new remote viewing mission. A small envelope was sent 
which Robert kept in his shirt pocket, unopened. From inside Monroe's specially designed sensory deprivation tank, Joe focused on the sealed envelope in Robert's pocket. Unknown to Monroe or McMonagall, written on the small card inside the envelope were time-space coordinates far away on the planet Mars one million years B.C. So neither one of them know what this is, but you know they that's their target. Mars in one million B.C. Now, what did Joe see? At first, he saw an old sandy pyramid. He said, it's so tall, it boggles the mind. Now, after, you know, looking at it a little later, they estimated it to be 20 kilometers or 12 miles high. That is a big, big structure. Now, it emerges from a deep depression in the ground. There were vast storms swirling across the sky, and it seemed that a cataclysm had occurred. So they said, Joe, let's go back. Go back before this cataclysm. So Joe went back a little further, and he said it was like night and day. The sandy pyramid was now shimmering in a metallic color, reflecting the sun. And there was vague forms of gigantic, thin people that he could make out. They were supposedly an ancient race, and they said they were doomed to die if those who left in search of another home did not return. Now, his handler gave him a few different sets of coordinates to take a look at before Joe ended up fizzling out, but the main area of his focus was later to be revealed as the Cydonia region of Mars. And if any of y'all know anything about the, the Cydonia region, that's a very interesting area for mm-hmm. a lot of... UFO and extraterrestrial investigators and everything, because there are two unexplained geological formations in this area. And they were first photographed by Viking 1 in 76. That's the face on Mars and a mysterious mountain that eerily resembles a giant pyramid. So McMonagall apparently saw this area prior prior to and after a cataclysm. And he described the cataclysm as a geologic cataclysm. There were storms raging, um, you know, what we call dust devils here, mm-hmm. big dust tornadoes and earthquakes. And it was just horrible. And when he went back, just, you know, few hundred years before that, it was a thriving city, but they were looking for a way out. And they were going to die if their scouts didn't find someplace else for them. You know, we're talking 1 million BC. So people are are saying that this, that, you know, they are what came from Mars to Earth. And that was the scouts that they sent out. And apparently, McMonagall saw this. Yeah. So, if you think that's cool, there's something you need to consider. Now, really skilled remote viewers will tell you, you should never, ever 
try to remote view anything about aliens because there is supposedly a race of alien that can detect remote viewers. Makes sense. Why not? You know, if you can detect them, why couldn't they you? Yeah, but it goes a step further and says, in actuality, you should never try to remote view any non-human creature. So, don't be out there trying to remote view Bigfoot, you know. Oh, Biggie. Or the Loch Ness Monster, anything else. And and the reason why is because they feel like, and, and this is remote viewers we're talking about. They they feel like there is a there is a big potential for danger to the remote viewer if he is detected. Right. And that you could be looking into something that you you really don't need to see. Right. And like Targ said, he was lucky that he didn't get grabbed when he was on that UFO. Exactly. So, you know, aliens, Bigfoot, cryptids, whatever, off the list. Don't try to remote view them. See, and that's a bummer for me because that's where I was heading. But if you want to give this a try, and this is not something we do on Graveyard Tales. Normally, we're telling you, don't try this at home. Yes. Tonight, we're going to tell you a way that you can try this at home. And Matt and I may try it ourselves. (laughs) We might. Um, We'll film it if we do. This is pretty cool. So if you think, hey, this sounds like something that I'd like to try. Um, this is how you do it. So get a pen and paper out. So, so, you know, even though true skilled remote viewers that worked for the U S government took years of training to hone their skill, you can train yourself to do this. Okay. And it's pretty simple. Okay. So step one, get a box. Step two, (laughs) cut a hole in this box. I told Adam, I said, this, this is gonna, this is gonna, this is gonna be funny when I start this. But I didn't tell him what I was gonna say. But as soon as he said, "Get a box," what pops into my head? And I knew it. I knew it would. But for it, really, really, step one is get a box. But step two is uh, have a friend take an item from your house without your knowledge, knowing what it is or what room it came from or anything. And put it in the box and make sure they don't give you any clues as to what it is. Step three, have your friend place that box in another room. Now, if you're in the same room with the box, you will concentrate on the box. And that's going to cloud the information you receive because now you're going to be thinking you're trying to look into the box. Mm -hmm. You're going to peer through the walls of the box and see what's inside. That's not remote viewing. Okay. So you want to be separated from the box. So you have no knowledge of what's in there and you're not in the same room. So you're separated by distance. Okay. Now, step four, relax. Okay. Try to meditate and clear your mind. In fact, it's a good idea to go ahead and and start trying to do this before the process even begins. You know, try to relax, clear your mind. Don't try to do this, you know, at six o'clock when you get home from a stressful day at work, you know, something you want to do when you're, when you're feeling pretty good, you know, you're not really focused on anything and you can kind of chill out and just open up your mind. Now, step five, have a pen and paper ready 
and just allow images to form in your mind, like shape, color, or feel. Write down what you see and try not to guess what the item is. Just take in the data that's coming to you. Mm -hmm. Now, continue to do this and allow more and more images to appear. Step six, have your friend assist you by asking open-ended questions like, what's in the box? What does it look like? These, like I said before, help further the process along. Step seven, when you have received enough information, look at it and try to piece it together to determine what the object is. Again, try not to guess. Use only the information that you have collected to make a deduction as to what the item actually is. Mm -hmm. Allow the information that you've collected to form an image of the object in your mind. Right. Okay. And then see if you're right. Right. And like Matt was saying, you know, when you, when I was reading through the FOIA documents that give you the, you know, the transcript of what the monitor was saying and what the remote viewer was saying, they, when the remote viewer gets into, well, I, I, I'm trying to put this together. I'm trying to put this together. The monitor immediately goes, no, do not form an opinion. Just right. tell me what you're seeing. You're, you're just collecting information. So as a monitor, if your friend is helping you monitor, that's part of their job is to keep you from going down that path of trying to guess what it is. Right. Just give your impressions and, you know, it will come to you. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the examples that, that I read was if you see something that's very large and mountain-like with fire coming out of the top of it, you would make the assumption that it's a volcano, mm -hmm. but you don't know that yet. Right. So you can't guess because once you start trying to guess, then the information that you're getting is is worthless because it's clouded and and you're you're bringing up memories and images mm -hmm. of volcanoes and things like that so it, it's not going to work it's not going to be helpful at that point so you right. just have to keep that mind open and, and the the other piece of trying this yourself is that you you've got to keep an open mind about the process if you if you go at it like well, I'm going to prove or disprove that this really works. Then you're already sunk. Right. You know, you, you've all, you, you, whether you think so or not, you've already got a preconceived idea of whether this is, you know, legit or whether it's a bunch of crap. So you just have to kind of open yourself up to say, let's see if it's possible. Mm -hmm. You know, let's just, let's just see if, if we get anything from this at all. Right. And by doing that, you're, you're going to be more open to receiving the information that is out there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, all right. So, yeah, now you, you've now listened to Graveyard Tales Tried at Home Edition. Right. <laughs> and when you try it at home, please let us know how it worked for you. Yeah. I'm absolutely. very interested. I, if, if any, like I said, you know, this is so simple to do that, you know, Adam and I, when we came across this, we thought, yeah, we're going to try this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think, sure. I think if anything, it'd be fun, you know, whether, whether it works or not, it, it, it'd be fun. Um, 
you know, so we we'll probably give it a try and we'll let you know when we do and if it if it works or anything like that, you know. Um, but if any of you guys decide you're going to try this, we want to know how it works out for you. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, like I said, if anything, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be a fun little experiment. Yeah. Um, but I think that that just about wraps up our episode on remote viewing. Pretty interesting stuff. I mean, I, I knew what remote viewing was. I had, I had read some stuff about it in the past. I knew that the U S government had used it in the seventies and eighties, um, but I I didn't know the details that we learned by researching this. Yeah, and you know we are really really close to being able to say this is a legitimate phenomenon. Yeah, that this is not something that is just a bunch of hokey you know nutso junk. Right. I would that, say of all the stuff we've talked about, this is probably the one that's the most legit. Yeah, it, it's the closest to being a legitimate thing we can test. Yeah, and there, there, there's documented evidences that remote viewers have about an eighty percent accuracy rate. Right, which is crazy. Yeah, I, I mean that that's you, way above chance. They're you know they're telling you what's in the box. Mm-hmm. You know and. If they get even a little close, you know, if you throw something in the box, you know, I might could guess the color, you know, I'm not, you know, if I guessed what it was, it it would, I mean, that's exactly what it would be. A lucky guess. And that's not what these people are doing. They're they're not playing a guessing game and they are, they are accurate in their descriptions, you know, but, um, but I think it, I mean, I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And if you set aside the the crazier, you know, quote unquote, crazier viewings that they did that we talked about, like yeah, the, moon the moon and, and Mars, Mars and, and everything. Stuff, if you set those aside and you simply look at the ring around Jupiter, okay, that's right there. That's something nobody could have known because we didn't have the technology to see that. And then he freaking found out two years later with a flyby, you know? So that is proven and it's proven accurate. Yep. The, uh, Patty Hearst, that was proven accurate. Right. The, the submarine that they detected six months or so before they found it, the Russian submarine, there are a lot of cases that have evidence pointing to it's legitimate. And, if you go look at a lot of these FOIA documents, you can see a lot more in that sense of what is accurate, what is legitimate. And, you know, it's not just a bunch of bull that can't be tested. Right. So, you know, it it blows me away at how accurate these people get. Yeah. And if you hear anybody tell you, you know, that remote viewing is bunk and they, they can't replicate the, the, uh, findings and da, 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 point them to some of these cases. The, the Jupiter ring one is one to me that is phenomenal because it's, we didn't, yeah, we didn't have the technology. No. So there was no, and there was no way that you could guess, you know, uh, the earth doesn't have, a ring around it. Um, Mercury and Venus don't. Mars doesn't. So why would you just guess that 
Jupiter has a faint small ring around it. Right. You know, that's not something you would just guess because you know we eventually get there to see it. You know, so that is a a big, to me, a, a, a big point that proves that some people have high accuracy with this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, everybody, please be sure and go to check out our website, graveyardpodcast.com. We mention it every show, um, but there's so much that you can do at our website. You can purchase our merchandise, which we got all kinds of stuff in there that you can get with the Graveyard mm-hmm. Tales logo on there. And there's soon to be more. Um, there's soon to be more. Um, you can find out some more information about Adam and myself. Uh, you can become a patron. And thank you so much to everybody who has has donated to the show. Um, we we mention this a lot, but you, you honestly, you have no idea what a, a, so many of you, given just even a small amount, it adds up and it helps Adam and I keep this show going. Yes. You know, it, it helps us make the show better. It helps us put together things like our live event, which is right. coming up quickly on October 20th. Um, tickets are 10 bucks. Uh, it's us and Hillbilly Horror Stories, EVP mediums, and these guys are so cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you don't want to come see our ugly mugs, Come to see the EVP medium guys. I mean, they they have really got, you know, some awesome stuff. And yeah, they got some you know, stories to tell you. I'm telling you. So, you know, and then Macabre Melts, you know, some really, really cool products. Um, so so come check it out. Plus, it's right here at Hail Dark Aesthetics in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, which just just visiting um, you know, Hail Dark Aesthetics. It's a cool enough adventure in yeah. itself. Yep. Um, so they've got some pretty amazing things. So go and, and follow us on Facebook. Get in our Facebook group because you'll get uh, information about upcoming shows, but you get to interact with other graveyard members. And, man, they're great. You know, share stories, you know, put some funny ghost memes out there, whatever. We love it. We mm-hmm. love it. Keep it going. Please go and rate and review us on iTunes. This moves us up into the iTunes rankings. And the only reason we care, the only reason we ask is because it gets more people into the graveyard. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening. And until next time, we'll save a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. (laughs) 